Well, welcome everybody to the weekend, wherever you might be, at one of our campuses, at a venue, or someplace across the country or around the world. Always glad to be with you on the weekend. I want to bring a topic in front of you that all of us are very aware of. It is something that we wrestle with in our lives. It is something that all of us fear losing. What I'm talking about is our power or control. If you've been keeping up, at least here in the States, you may have heard that an actor by the name of Bruce Willis just recently announced that he's retiring from acting because it's a condition called aphasia. And what's happened is he's having a hard time sometimes recalling his lines. And there are words that get stuck, as we say, at the tip of his tongue, and he just can't, he can't bring it out. Doctors tell us that it's caused by head injuries or stroke or possibly brain tumor. And so he's had to step back and retire out of acting. And I was thinking to myself that for him, that's like his identity, not be able to repeat well-rehearsed lines, not be able to get that word out. That just has to feel so powerless for him. And perhaps you're facing something in your life right now that makes you feel so powerless, so weak. I'm reminded of what Napoleon Bonaparte said about power. He considered power to be like his mistress. He said, power is my mistress. I have worked too hard at her conquest to allow anyone to take her away from me. And yet sometimes we have no choice. The power we had is taken from us. It might be in terms of relationship. It might be economics. It might be politics. It might be our health. It might be a loss in a certain way that's been dramatic in our life. Someone we loved has, has been taken from us. And all of a sudden, we feel like we're out of control. As we rejoin the passion of Jesus, he's gone past what we think of as Palm Sunday. He's entered into Jerusalem. He's now about ready to be tried and we join him in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. He's been bound and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's been led away. And he's going to stand trial before the unofficial high priest, Annas. I, I call him the unofficial high priest because we know from history he had been deposed by the Romans. The Romans decided who would be high priest and who would not be high priest. It was quite political. And it made his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the new high priest. But the people, the leaders, still wanted to honor the old man and treated him like he was the high priest, and they brought Jesus there. And some distance behind, Peter and John were following. Now, John had a connection somehow with the high priest or his family, and he was able to get into the proceedings. He went then to the gate where he had to go through and he talked to a woman there who was kind of monitoring who went in and went out and talked her into allowing Peter to come in as well. But before she allowed Peter to come in, she asked him a question. Are you one of his followers? And uh, Peter just blurted out, no. And I am sure in that moment, a shock of shame and guilt must have just run through his very being no, how could he say no? How could he deny the Lord, his best friend? 
<laughs> That's not going to happen again. Meanwhile, Jesus stood in front of Annas, and Annas asked Jesus about his teachings and what was it that he was teaching his followers. And Jesus responded there in John 18 and said, it's no secret. You can ask any of them what I've been teaching, and they'll tell you. And all of a sudden, Jesus felt this stinging slap across his face. One of the temple guards slapped him. And Jesus responded to the guard and said, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Peter was standing around a fire trying to keep warm because it tells us it was cold. There were others that were standing around the fire as well. And some of them looked at Peter and they said, you're one of his followers, aren't you? No, Peter said it again a second time. It just came out in self-defense. Oh my goodness, what's happening to Peter? And then there was this slave girl who happened to be related to the servant of the high priest whose name was Malchus. If you're with us last week and remember, Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane in that olive grove had taken out his sword and had hacked off the ear of Malchus. And she looks at Peter and she says, you were in the olive grove, weren't you? No, he says for a third time. And right there, he hears the rooster crow. He remembers the words of Jesus who had warned him that before the rooster crowed, he would deny his savior, his friend, three times. And the gospels tell us that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I cannot imagine, can you? Well, they took Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas in order to make the whole trial official. Then afterwards, in the early hours of the morning, they led Jesus to the headquarters of the governor of the Judea, the Roman Pontius Pilate. Pilate, when he heard about what was going on and what they wanted, didn't want to deal with any of these matters. And he just simply said to the leaders, look, you're Jews. He's a Jew. This is a Jewish problem. You guys settle it. Deal with your customs, your laws. I don't want anything to do with it. And they said, we can't. We can't because you Romans won't let us execute anybody. And that had to have made Pilate a little nervous. Execution? What are we talking about here? What's going on? And so he began to talk to Jesus and kind of interview him and find out what's really taking place. What's, what's going on here? What's the, what's the problem? And as he's doing this, and Jesus is standing before him and others are watching what's happening. We pick up the story, the narrative in verse 33. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate re retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, and this is really important. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. 
but my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king? Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world. This is also important, okay? These are clues to testify to the truth. So I want you to remember this. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth, and I have come here to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. And by the way, he never answers his own question, does he? Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. And then Pilate suggested to the people that they take him up on an opportunity that he gives them every year. That is at Passover they could request that he would release to them a prisoner. And so since he does not find Jesus to be a threat or a political enemy, he says, I'll give you Jesus. And they say, no, we don't want him. Give us Barabbas. And Barabbas was a revolutionary. And so Pilate hands Jesus over to his soldiers. And it tells us that they beat him. They used a whip that had like lead tips on its talons. They struck him over and over again, leaving him a bloody pulp. They fashioned a crown of thorns and pressed it in on his head and then draped a purple robe around him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! Pilate then paraded Jesus out in front of the Jewish leaders and the crowd that was gathering He says, look, or behold, the man. In other words, this is no king. Look at him. Look how pitiful he is. I don't find him to be guilty. And they cry out and they say, in our law, it is required that one who blasphemes God by calling himself the son of God be judged. And when Pilate heard that, This claim of Jesus to be the Son of God, it made him very nervous. We pick it up in chapter 19 and verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. This is a very insecure man. He took Jesus back to the headquarters and asked him again, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power? There it is, right? I have the power to release you or crucify you. Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. It's all about power, isn't it? The religious leaders are fearful that Jesus is going to take their power away from them, their power over the people in their misuse of the law and the traditions that they've made up, the power that they've brokered with the Romans, especially the Sadducees, who are the bigwigs, so to speak, to be able to maintain some control, that that's going to go away because Jesus seems to have everybody in an uproar. Pilate fears Jesus because Jesus is a threat to his power as governor over Judea. I mean, Rome does not like to hear that its outlying territories are having riots or that things are not going well. Besides that, uh, Caesar is the one who says that he is God. 
And then there's Peter. Don't forget Peter. Peter's threatened by Jesus now because Peter goes along with Jesus and claims him to be his leader. And Peter's his follower. It may cost Peter his own life. And even though Peter has previously said to Jesus, if you die, I'm going to die with you. When it came down to it, and Peter realized he might lose his life over Jesus. He's more interested in preserving his own life and staying in control of himself. Let me ask you a question that I've been asking myself since I've been looking at this passage. And that is, do you fear that Jesus might take power away from you? Listen carefully. You should. You should fear that because Jesus does demand of his followers that they resign all power, all control of their lives over to him. And that is one of the hardest things that we struggle with in our lives, giving up power. So let's talk a little bit about this problem of human power that affects all of us, which we hate the thought of ever losing or having to give up. And some of you, as you're listening to me, wherever you are right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're facing some challenges in your life, mental, emotional, physical, whatever it is, economic, that that you feel like is taking something away from you. You feel powerless or you feel your control being threatened. And we are called to be willing to release that control and trust God. Why Why is it such a problem for us? Why is it such a problem for humanity to give up control, to give up power? Well, remember when we read the passage of Scripture, I said, pay attention to a couple of things. And one of them was when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. There's two implications in what he's saying. One, he's saying, look, don't confuse how my kingdom operates with how earthly kingdoms operate. It's not the same. It's not political. And the second thing that's implied there is for those who are his followers, it's a reminder to them that we are never to make his kingdom, his work, his mission political. And yet that is one of the greatest struggles we have in our lives. We're all politicians. We're all political with our power in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships, at work, wherever we are. We are always trying to coerce. We're always trying to manipulate. We're always trying to buy votes. We're always trying to get people to go our way. And if we can, even force them to go along with us. Because all of us struggle with pride and pride and power are married to each other. And Jesus is saying, look, my kingdom is not a political kingdom. And my followers are not to be political. I think if Jesus were speaking to us in modern day terms, what he might say to us, given our understanding of politics these days, he might say something like this to us. He might say, you know, I'm not going to establish a kingdom like you humans have established in your countries and on this earth. And I don't want my followers to think that way about my work, about my ministry, about my church. 
I can hear Jesus saying, I don't have an army. I don't have tanks. I don't have missiles. I don't have a Navy. I don't have an Air Force. I can hear Jesus saying, I don't need social media. I don't need social media to mock people, to put people down, to tweet out negative things, nasty things. I don't need the media to push my agenda for me. I can hear Jesus saying, I don't make promises I can't keep. I can hear Jesus saying, I don't succumb to lobbyists. I don't buy votes. I don't hold rallies and belittle people. I can hear Jesus saying, I don't say one thing with my words, but then do something else with my behavior. My kingdom's not ruled by oligarchs. My kingdom is not ruled by dictators. My kingdom's not ruled by competing political parties. And don't try to make it that way. Why? Because God knows and has told us over and over again, when we take our human sense of power, our political power, and try to marry it to him and to his work, it always leads to a disaster. Just go back to the Old Testament for a moment. When the people rejected God and said they wanted an earthly king, and they got Saul, and you read the rest of the Old Testament, it was nothing but trouble. It was nothing but problems because human power got involved. Or if you think about the church born in the New Testament, you know, when the church married itself to Constantine, right? And became the quote, official religion of the empire. That's when the church became so corrupted and became so weak and so filled with factions You know, if you go back and study the earliest church history, in the book of Acts, it says that the church literally was turning the world upside down. And that's before it ever came into any kind of political power. That's when it was being persecuted. That's when it was suffering. Do you realize that the church was the strongest, the most powerful when it was being persecuted, when it was suffering? They fed the poor. They treated slaves and free people the same. They gave dignity and elevated the role of women. They rescued children who were being thrown out, especially little girls. They stood against what we think of today as abortion. They sold whatever they had and gave whatever they had. Go read the first four or five chapters of the book of Acts. It was tremendous. The church was growing. It was multiplying. It was literally influencing the culture around it. But not by politics. But the moment the church and government came together is when bureaucracy was born into the church and power struggles started taking place. And corruption became rampant within the church. And it lost its witness. And I can hear Jesus saying to us today, don't let that happen in my church. Don't marry yourself. Don't look to human power. Don't look to politics, personal or otherwise, to move my kingdom forward. It will not work. It never works. It only leads to corruption. It only leads to hurt and bitterness. And we've seen that over the last couple of years because we're constantly tempted 
and being wooed into human power because it's what we know. It's what we are. Jesus says we have to stay separate from that and not buy into that, not become a part of that. I love these words by Henry Nouwen. I want to actually put them up and read them for you. Henry Nouwen asked the question, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand and in your kingdom? We have been tempted to replace love with power. That is, that is so profound. Henry Nouwen wrote, and it is so true. It's so much easier to have power, to grasp power, to exercise power than to demonstrate and practice love. And we face that temptation, that jostling in our lives all the time. Jesus made it clear. He said, look, my kingdom is not of this earth and I have come to testify to the truth. And so what Jesus, in essence, is saying is, look, what will change society, what changes the world is not power and politics. It is truth. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Another way to put it, another way to see it is like this. And that is God's truth and God's love. Grace, truth, truth and love. Jesus says, this is how the world is changed. This is how peoples are changed. This is how individuals and families and nations, this is, this is what makes a nation great. Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. That's all he asks us to do. That's what he asks his church to be about. That's what he came to demonstrate, God's truth and God's love. When you think about your life, do you live a lifestyle of truth and love? You cannot separate the, the two. You know, it's been said, truth without love is harsh, like a hammer. And love without truth is is soft. It makes no difference. It's, it's useless. But truth and love together is powerful. See, that's the key. In essence, what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to Annas and to Caiaphas and to Pilate and to the crowds is that if you really want to experience power, then you need to give up human power. If you want to really experience power, then you've got to learn to become weak in terms of how the world views power. You know, Paul, before he was converted, was a, humanly speaking, powerful man. 
I mean, he was growing in the ranks of Judaism, in the ranks of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He could have them put to death. He was so powerful. And then Jesus ambushed him on the way to Damascus and blinded him. And suddenly he became so weak. And in his weakness, he cried out to God. And God dramatically transformed and changed his life. And God used him in such a powerful way. But do you know how God used Paul powerfully? By keeping him weak. In fact, there's a point in time in Paul's life, and many of you know this well, where he cried out, he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't, we're not sure what that was. And he said, please, Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. He asked God three times. Paul is asking God three times. Surely God will hear Paul's prayer. And yet God responds to Paul this way. God said to me, Paul says, my grace, that's my truth, my love, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in that thorn in the flesh of your life. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Isn't that beautiful? What's the weakness you're being challenged with right now? What's the weakness you're facing in your life right now? That has you agitated and aggravated and perhaps even angry at God. You're wondering why you can't have your power back that you used to have. Or if you had more of this kind of power, you could get past this thing right now. What's keeping you from just simply saying to God, God, you're allowing me to go through this loss of power in my life right now. In relationships, in, in finances, in whatever it is, in my health. God, be glorified. God, may your strength, may your grace, may your truth take over my weakness. May you become ever more powerful in and through my life. You know, Jesus demonstrated this for us. That's the amazing thing about our Lord. He does not ask us to do something that he himself has not experienced and done as well. Think about the power of Jesus. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, seated at the right hand of God, full of glory, and yet he gives that all up. He empties himself of that, and he becomes so vulnerable, so weak, a baby in the womb, a child in the manger, can you get any more vulnerable, any weaker than a baby? And then eventually, because a man stretched out on the cross and crucified, there is no, there's no sign of greater weakness than to be crucified. It is the epitome of weakness, humanly speaking, to be crucified. And yet what men laughed at and saw as weakness was God's strength. This Good Friday, we'll see how God's power was being manifested to cancel our sins. And on Resurrection Weekend, we will see God's power and how he raised up from the dead, assuring us of our future resurrection. Do you know that Jesus, in his weakness, utterly depended on the power of his Father that he would raise him up again. 
How about you? How about me? In your weakness and in my weakness, will we believe that God has the power to raise us up again, to see us through this valley of the shadow of death to the other side? Can you believe that? Can I believe that? Can we believe that in our moment of weakness, like Jesus, we have the opportunity to experience the power of God? Will you bow to that? Will you surrender to that? As Jesus did, will you? Will I? I was reading about a missionary and uh, this gentleman, and I'll share with you his name. His name was um, Leonard Dober. I keep wanting to change the letters around. That's why I have to look it up. Leonard Dober came to faith in Christ at the age of 17 in what's called a Moravian church. It's about 1706 when this happened. When he turned 25 years old in about 1731, he happened to hear a man by the name of Count Nicholas Zinzendorf talking about the great need for missionaries to go to the West Indies, the Caribbean, which in those days was a dangerous place to be, and to minister to the thousands and thousands of slaves who were there. Zinzendorf said he had spoken to a slave that had been in the Danish territory of St. Thomas, St. Thomas Island, who had said, yes, yes, my people, those slaves are very open to hearing about Christianity. And when Dober heard that, he decided then and there he was going to give his life to telling others about Jesus and particularly all those slaves in the West Indies. And so he set out to go. And in order to go, he decided that he was actually going to sell himself as a slave. He was going to become a slave. And when they asked him, why do you want to sell yourself into slavery? He said, so that they will believe me when I tell them about the love of God. I must become like them. Well, he was not allowed to do it. And so he still went and he was a potter. So he found some work to do in the West Indies there in St. Thomas. And every moment he had, he spent with the slaves. Every moment he had, he ministered to them. He washed their feet. He loved on them. He served them. He told them about God's grace. And in the two years that he was there, the door opened up for 18 more Moravian missionaries to show up. And before any other missionaries came, 13,000 men, women, boys, and girls came to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because one man was willing to even give himself up as a slave if that's what it took to bring them the good news. One man was willing to become powerless so that those people could experience the power of forgiveness and the resurrection. Well, listen, Jesus Jesus became like a slave. He became like a servant. He was a servant. 
He was condemned as a criminal, though he was innocent. And he died for you and me. Listen to this. Because he loves you and me so much. Would you surrender to his love this weekend? Would you surrender all your weakness? Would you humble yourself before him? And ask him to become the power in your life, the grace and the truth of your life. I was reminded this past week of the words of my spiritual father, Dr. Stephen Olford, who was asked, what does it mean to be a great Christian leader? And in his British accent, he responded by saying, three things. One, bent knees. Two, wet eyes. Three, a broken heart. I thought a lot about that this weekend. What does it mean to be strong in God? It means to have bent knees in humility and in prayer. It means to have wet eyes that weep for the lost, for those who don't know God's love and grace. It means to have a broken heart, to be willing to become a slave if that's what it takes to make sure people hear about the grace of God. When Christ's church is willing to get on its knees and weep tears of repentance and tears of brokenness and with a broken heart cry out to God, she will experience his power. Speaking to churches here in America, Christians here in America today, we desperately need to get on our knees. We desperately need to weep and ask God to forgive us for trying human power and human ways and politics to change the world. And with a broken heart, we need to ask God to fill us with his spirit, to give us his grace, his power, to take our weaknesses, use them for his glory, grace, and truth. We're going to turn it now over to our campus pastors as well as our venue pastors.